a RICO count has to have elements of a broader conspiracy or common aim or objective of multiple persons across a wide spectrum of jurisdictions and culpability. Here, it gives the Georgia prosecutor the opportunity to bring in facts that she normally would not bring into an indictment that take place out of her jurisdiction, that she would have more challenge bringing in a more narrow type of indictment. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Everyone, this is Tom Fox back with our continuing special editions of All Things Investigations with Kenyon Brown and Kevin Carroll as we look at the indictments against former President Trump. This week, we had an indictment come out of Georgia, extraordinarily significant. Gentlemen, first of all, welcome back. And it looks like this is going to become a weekly show. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> the uh, Let me start with you, Kenyon. Uh, because I wanted you to maybe educate us on what is a RICO claim? What is the significance of a RICO claim in this context? And how, maybe how is this different in quantity and quality from Jack Smith's January 6th indictment that we spoke about in our last episode? Yeah, sure, sure. Generally speaking, a RICO count has to have elements of a broader conspiracy or common aim or objective of multiple persons across a wide spectrum of jurisdictions and culpability. Here, it gives the Georgia prosecutor the opportunity to bring in facts that she normally would not bring into an indictment that take place out of her jurisdiction, that she would have more challenge bringing in a more narrow type of indictment. So the RICO charges here allow her to bring in a broader set of facts and actors in order to show the greater backdrop of the criminal enterprise. So that is the key phrase, the criminal enterprise to achieve a certain unlawful objective. And it, in Georgia, it actually has to have two underlying felonies that have to be at least two underlying felonies that serve as a basis for the broader RICO charge that's coming forward. Now, in terms of how it's different than the other one, just by observation, I would call this one the kitchen sink indictment. I think if one of the alleged defendants had jaywalked, in furtherance of one of these, she might have put that in there too. 
And that doesn't mean that it's inappropriate. It just contains just about everything you can think of in every part of the conspiracy. Now, from a prosecutor perspective, I, I think it's bold, it's daring, it puts all the facts out there. And D.A. Willis has said that, hey, Georgia, Fulton County jurors in particular are smart. They like to know the whole context. For me, I would, if I were drafting it, I might draft it a little bit more narrowly just to include the facts in Georgia. The more facts you put out there that you have a challenge improving or establishing, the more leverage you give the defense attorney to say, hey, they didn't prove X, they didn't prove Y, they didn't prove Z, or that's fuzzy. So even if you can prove the other things, at least you might give up some argument that, hey, the prosecutor has not met their burden. So I think she could have told a very compelling narrative without including, what is it, over 50 pages of overt acts in her particular criminal indictment. But that being said, it's very compelling, it's strong. By counterpoint, the federal indictment from Jack Smith, I think, went into a lot more detail and great length in terms of really laying out Donald Trump's state of mind, proving mens rea. For example, it said his chief of staff told him he lost the election. This person told him he tossed the election, told him he lost the election. So you as a reader, and presumably the jury, if he's able to prove it out, would be left with no alternative that he knowingly lied. Here, there's just a broad general allegation that false statements were made. So that is the RICO. I'll let Kevin opine on that now. I, I agree with Kenyon <clears throat> as usual. And a little bit of background <clears throat> on RICO and why it's sad to see it applied here, even if it's applied appropriately to the former president of the United States. You know, RICO was developed by a Notre Dame law professor named Robert Blakely, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, back in the late 60s and early 70s. And it went into one of the omnibus crime bills that was that, that was passed during that period <clears throat> in the Nixon administration. And it was intended to deal with the mafia. And I grew up in, in New York City back when the mafia had a great deal of influence there. I went to Catholic school with the sons of made guys who were perfectly nice young men who were not going into the family business. And But it was designed to deal with the mafia because the mafia had its fingers in so many different things. They were involved in loan sharking. They were involved in extortion. They were involved in prostitution, drugs, contract killing, all these kind of things. Enrico gave a, a good way for prosecutors to plead that in, in you know, about a continuing criminal enterprise in a good sense. And one of the first DOJ strike force lawyers who explained to the rest of the DOJ in training programs how it could be applied was John Dowd, who is the former counsel to, to the president on this. And then the lawyer who made the most famous use of it was Rudy Giuliani when I was a young man in New York with the mob commission case, which was, I think, 85, and you know, taking down the five families of La Costa Nostra in New York in the 1980s. So I think it fits the facts of the crimes here for the reasons that Kenyon explained. But boy, it's unfortunate for the country that it's the relevant statute to deal with the behavior of former president of the United States. Kevin, let me just pick up on your excellent recitation of the underlying background of RICO and how it was initially used, we're very far from the five families. And we are in Georgia with a Georgia RICO statute, largely based on the federal statute. But 
Is it, has it been broadened to be used in other criminal contexts? Is that the basis for its use in this case? It has been brought in other contexts, and there's even a civil component to it. You have to plead it with great specificity, as you do with the criminal statute. But yeah, it started with with La Cosa Nostra, and then has been pled to, say, ordinary nar- narcotics gangs, for example. It's been pled in some civil rights cases, I believe. I believe it's been used against the Klan, effectively, in a couple of uh, in a couple of circumstances. But it's really applied against bad actors. And and, and in civil litigation, pleading civil RICO against a a white-collar defendant is a really significant accusation. So again, the fact that a a grand jury found that it appropriately applied to the activities of the highest ranking officials in the United States is a cause for regret. Can you let me pick up on a phrase you used that, frankly, I'm not typically associated with prosecutors, and that's bold and daring as you described the indictment itself. You listed out some of the reasons that you might have gone a different direction, but why did you use that phrase, bold and daring, for this indictment? It is so sweeping, and it includes individuals and government officials on the federal and state and local level that one is not going to make friends by doing this in the state of Georgia or nationally. In other words, it creates a lot of enemies for a prosecutor to go after these folks and not even speaking about the merit of it. And you have to have some big cojones to do that. And this prosecutor has laid it all out there. And I'm not saying appropriately or inappropriately, the jury will decide that, but it is bold to go after Republican party chairs and Republican county chairs and the former chief of staff, in addition to the president, it is so bold and sweeping in its scope. Like I said, I call it a kitchen sink indictment. I want to go on a word that I think as a particular side note that I find disturbing here, and this is not by the prosecution or the defense really, but I'm I'm flabbergasted that the Georgia's grand jury procedures include the publishing of the names of the grand jury members. To me, this just goes counter to what is basic in most jurisdictions. And now you read reports that the grand jurors are being harassed or there's a call to harass them. Their names or their addresses and photos and social media pages are being put on far right-wing media. And this is just disturbing to me because this chills a critical component of our criminal justice system to let these folks be potentially harassed and intimidated. I I had the exact same reaction as I was scrolling through the indictment and suddenly came across a list of the grand jurors. I felt like when you're on the internet, you're following a link and all of a sudden some porn pops up and you're like, whoa, I shouldn't be looking at that. You want to back away from it. This this, this must've been posted in error or something. That's the names of the grand jurors. I was flabbergasted. Let me turn to something you both touched on, but I wanted to ask you directly. How do you see this Georgia indictment as either complementary, supplementary, or other to Jack Smith's January 6th indictment? I thought Smith's was stronger for the following reasons, some of which Kenyon touched upon. The 19 defendants strikes me to reach, and I don't claim to be an expert in Georgia state or local politics, so I might not realize the significance of some of these names. But I noticed that Smith indicted one fella 
Uh, and there's four unnamed co-conspirators in that indictment who it seems very well could end up indicted in a supplementary indictment or a totally separate indictment if they don't plead out. Here, I'm not sure how they deal with 19 defendants. Presumably, there'll be some guilty pleas in return for cooperation. Presumably, there'll be some motions to sever. But, you know, what a cattle call it would be. You would have, what, 38 defendants and counsel, at least, trying to interpose speaking objections. You know, reading the, the jury charge would take two days and stuff like that, especially with all the different counts here and all the different RICO predicates. I, I totally understand and agree with the state of Georgia asserting its rights here when a fraud was perpetrated against the voters of Georgia and the state of Georgia. But boy, I think I would have kept it to Trump, Meadows, Eastman, Giuliani, Cheesebro, maybe. I think making it four or five times the size that may have been a serious mistake. Yeah, I kind of share that. You want to be able to tell a coherent narrative when you're putting on a case. And to the extent that you've got so many people that are indicted and so many different people of high position that you have to call in to prove your case on the different defendants. I could see this trial going forward, but being very choppy where they have to break at points in order to get certain witnesses there, to get certain defendants there. It just, in my view, and we'll see how it plays out, but it's going to be a choppy presentation. And I think the Smith indictment is much more streamlined. It gets right to the heart of what we're talking about. It's no nonsense. Now, that being said, D.A. Willis has an extraordinary track record in bringing these RICO charges against the school system corruption down there in Fulton County. And she's got some other RICO indictments against some drug dealers down there. So she is a tactician with respect to the use of the statute. But I would personally be much more succinct in my drafting. Choppy is the word. Can you imagine the first witness that the DA puts on is whoever the lead detective was on this, does her direct with objections by 19 different defense counsel and then followed by 19 cross-examinations? It would just be a lot. I would remind you, Kevin, that the non-mafia commission trial lasted almost 18 months yeah. and Giuliani got a clean sweep in that. Yeah. The irony of that, of course, is Rudy Giuliani did that. Let me address what I wrote down as some of the, I've called it buckets of charges. We've got false claims of election fraud. We have a false slate of electors. We have stealing or attempted theft or tampering with voter data. We have, and I've, what I found the most is troubling or disgusting part was harassment rather of election officials detailed in a way I was not aware of. Did any of those, were any of those claims or allegations new or different or something that you didn't expect in this indictment? I think the Smith indictment went through great pains to as much as they could to try to craft things so they didn't veer over into First Amendment issues. Here, I think she will have a more boisterous defense put forward against some of that. Now, they are, according to her allegations, false statements. Some could argue that's political speech, and political speech is the most protected in the country. I think she'll have a challenge. I think she will overcome them personally. But I think the breadth of the specific acts that she put in there 
leaves room for a lot more challenge and argument to these overt acts than the Smith indictment has. Tom, I shared your <clears throat> gut reaction that the uh, the harassment of the polling official, I believe her name is Ruby Williams, it was just sickening. My mother used to do the, the election day poll stuff when I was growing up. It was a, a little bit of civic duty and a way to say hello to neighbors. And I, I imagine this woman was not that dissimilar from my mom in that sense. And it's a, the sick way that they went after her. And <clears throat> especially... These are very senior government officials. There's a phrase in politics, don't punch down. Go after your peers, but don't go after civilians, so to speak. The idea that you would have the most senior officials in the United States government conspiring to try to frighten an old lady, it's grotesque. Kenyon, what does the naming of some of the individuals below Trump, and we've talked about them, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Sidney Powell, and others, how much pressure does that put on them to cut a deal, to cooperate, or other? You bring up a great point, and I think that goes back to perhaps something we didn't answer earlier that you asked. How does this case, how is it complementary or contradictory, or how does this work in tandem with the federal case? And I would say it makes it very tricky, because you might have someone that wants to flip in the federal system, but, you know, that immunity does not necessarily extend in the state. And those are separate sovereigns. And to the extent that the media, by the way, I've heard some say, some government officials say, well, it's not right that a county prosecutor should bring a case against the president. Their crimes alleged to have been committed in their jurisdiction. That does not turn jurisprudence on its head. But that being said, I think it crowds out those witnesses makes it very difficult for the delicate dance that has to be done between Jack Smith and D.A. Willis when they're talking about cooperating individuals. At some point, I think they're going to have to talk about cooperating individuals and offer parallel immunity because otherwise one might want to cooperate in one case and not get the immunity in the other and it just creates a problem. And I'd sure want to go first if I was one of those two prosecutors, you know what I mean? Cause I wouldn't want to be the second guy to put the witness on the stand in a separate trial and defense counsel gets up and says, well, that's not what you said in Fulton County. Was it Mr. Jones? It's as Kenyon said, they got to talk, they got to cooperate. They got to deconflict this if they're not going to both mess up each other's cases. And especially the second guy or gal that goes. Kevin, I tend to look towards you for having a little bit more of a finger on the pulse of the politics of all of this in the political scene. Do you see anything new or different in the political reactions to this indictment yet? Yeah, and listen, I hate to say this as a former Republican. The commentary that I've seen so far has been even more explicitly racial because it's a, because it's a black DA. Just yeah, I, I used to give to the Republican Party, so I still get the fundraising emails, and it's horrifying the stuff that I'm seeing on emails that are being sent off clearly off a Republican National Committee donor list. I am donated to the GOP since maybe 2014. So that's one part of it that, that stands out to me. It's unfortunate, I think, in this country that, that state court judges and county DAs are elected and not appointed because people are able to say legitimately that these are elected Democrats are elected Republicans, and there's been allegations that the DA has been raising money off of this. So that's going to be one of the things that uh, makes it less clean 
than a than a federal case. Coming from a state that has elected judges, let me take a little bit of the opposite that every four years we get to opine on their <laughs> performance at the ballot yeah. box. I'm not offended by that, nor do I think that demeans in any way the authority that each one of those persons has as an elected official. If we could, maybe in the remaining few minutes, we also had a hearing in the D.C. January 6th case after our last podcast, and maybe get to some of your thoughts on that in terms of this was for the protective order and a proposed trial date. Did the trial court judge, did you feel like she was able to if not keep control, set some parameters that she feels will lead to a fair trial if and when it gets to that. I, The general counsel in my firm will get upset if I criticize a federal judge in a podcast. I don't think the district judge in D.C. is doing a good job of taking care that this thing is in control yet for a very specific reason. She told the defendant and defense counsel that she didn't want any inflammatory language. The former president went right back out and started tweeting things such as that the judge had admitted to being involved in election interference. It was completely false. And then last night, we have an arrest of somebody for threatening to kill the judge and a member of Congress. The former president, the defendant, ignored the judge, is basically taunting her to do something. And I think it's incumbent upon her to either gag him or remand him into custody. And if she's not going to do it for her own personal safety, she's got to think of the personal safety of the prosecutors and especially the witnesses and the jurors and the family members of of all involved. The Marshal Service does a very good job of looking after judges. I know that from experience. They do a very good job, I understand it, of looking after U.S. attorneys. Marshal Service isn't big enough as a practical matter to look after all the witnesses and all the jurors in a big trial like this over a period of time. So I think that the judge right now, does not have control of the proceeding in D.C., and that she ought to reestablish that control by gagging the defendant or sending him down. Yeah, I, I agree with Kevin, but I think perhaps the judge is thinking about it in broader terms than she ordinarily would on a vanilla case that comes before her. What ramifications will stifling his alleged free speech have on his supporters during the midst of a heated political campaign where he has supporters that tend not to believe that he's done anything wrong across the spectrum of issues. What will it mean if she takes him into custody? So I I think that she's exercising restraint. I don't know that I agree with the restraint or not, but I just know that I'm glad I'm not in her seat and trying to balance those concerns. The best book I read last year, if I could interject, was The Gotti Wars by Judge Gleason from EDNY, who was previously the second chair assistant on the first trial of John Gotti and the first chair assistant on, on the second trial where he's convicted. And in the first trial, Judge Nickerson, because it was such an important case and because Gotti was such a big figure in New York and because the government's proof was so solid, Nickerson let the defense get away with a lot. And it just started building and building to a shocking point. For example, at one point, defense counsel stands up, obviously, without any foundation, and says to a government witness, didn't the prosecutor, who's a female, um, mail you her panties in the uh, the prison so that you could masturbate into the panties? And isn't that how she got you 
to testify. It's just the sort of thing that I've never heard in a courtroom. And the judge just like let it go by. And uh, Gotti was acquitted for several different reasons, including that he got to one of the jurors. But what I'm afraid of with the judges here is that they're going to, just as Kenyon said, they're going to try to be so restrained because this is such an unprecedented situation. And if you give this defendant, and I hate to say it as defense counsel so far, an inch, they're going to take a yard and it's going to be physically dangerous for people. Let me suggest another reason that I see, which is building a record, that I see the court, as you suggested, Kenyon, with restraint, I would say very judiciously, setting a rule, setting a guidepost, setting a parameter, and that parameter being broken. And she's now set a second parameter. And we've now had that broken. And so I guess I see her building a record if she does have to take a more drastic step, whether that be reduce the time of pretrial leading up to a trial, putting on a gag order, or as Kevin has suggested, perhaps another remedy. I guess I see judicial restraint, building a record. And at this point, I'm not going to disagree with her approach yet. Gentlemen, like I said, we just may have to make this a weekly. One, I'm having way too much fun. And two, they were coming fast and furious. So until next time, whenever that might be. Pleasure. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to All Things Investigations, a Hughes Hubbard podcast produced by the Compliance Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode of All Things Investigations.